Please be sure to visit our Etsy store for some great Warrior Next Door podcast merchandise. And please consider becoming a premium subscriber. Just go to our Facebook page to sign up and receive each series uncut in its entirety. Welcome to the final episode of the Frank McClellan series, co-hosted by Peter Lyon, David Brookins, and Priscilla Forney. In episode two, we heard Frank describe the advance through Paris and fighting in the Hurtgen Forest, as well as his capture in the Battle of the Bulge. In this episode, Frank discusses his time as a POW, and he also describes his poor treatment as a returning POW and his difficulties in adjusting to civilian life after the war. All right, let's get into uh, a, a little bit more of a little bit of the lighthearted side of things here. He talks about some humorous events that, that happened as a POW. Uh, there were some humorous events as a prisoner of war, and it wasn't all tragic. We uh, had our little fun with the Germans by confusing them in their counts of uh, every day, two day, twice a day they counted us in. We would have to line up in columns of five, and two Germans, one in front of us and one behind us, would count us off in units of five, and they would do it on orders from the German Leutnant, who was command of that particular barracks at whatever you were in. In the middle of our column of fives, which would be probably 200 men in this particular section, we would have what we called bobbers, and when the the counters would arrive. One man would move to the right, and one man would move to the left, and another man would move backwards, and we would confuse her count. <laughs> and they would recount us maybe two times till they'd lost their humor, and then the pistols would, would be drawn, and the order would be given, Achtung stillgestanden. So that time you better stand still because the pistols was pointed right at you. 15 or 16 years ago, I returned to Luxembourg and Belgium and returned to the exact spot where I was captured. And I think it did me a world of good because now I no longer have this guilt feeling. I felt at that time, looking at the the terrain and what I went through at that time in 1944, I was very fortunate to be taken prisoner because uh, of the events, not knowing where to fall back and where to go, not to my liking to be a prisoner of war, but I think it was the only thing that we could do was to surrender to the Germans because it was almost hopeless. We hadn't eaten for four days. We were wet, we were cold, we were injured, we were sick. Life following the war, became very difficult for me, perhaps four months after the war. At that time, I didn't realize it, but my nerves were very bad, and uh, I had a very difficult time with my family. I had two children. At that time, 
one child that I hadn't seen until I returned home. I couldn't stand my children crying. I couldn't stand my wife when she turned the radio up. I couldn't sleep in bed with my wife. I had terrible nightmares and not thinking that this all came from being a prisoner of war. I held these feelings for quite a number of years. I couldn't go into a crowded room where there was, say for instance, a dance or a party. I just had to get out, I had to run. I couldn't get on an elevator that was crowded. I wanted to shout, I wanted to scream. And I thought I was cracking up, I thought I was going crazy. But several years ago, there was a, a change of policy with the Veterans Administration and we were speaking of prisoners of war. We had sessions with psychiatrists and psychologists and I found all this from all those years was related to being a prisoner of war. My claustrophobia came from the time I was locked in the boxcars. My bad dreams of that I held for years came from a prisoner of war. Some of the dreams was confinement dreams. I would be in a, a building and I couldn't find a way to get out. There was no doors, no windows. Another dream that I have had and still have is that I'm still in a prisoner of war camp. Everybody knows the war's over. Everybody on the outside of the barbed wire is telling me the war's been over, but I can't find a gate to get out. Now that I've been taking some psychiatric treatment at the VA hospital, I feel much better. I don't have as much nervous tension. I still have some tension. My sleeping habits are very poor although I'm on a medication, but the medication does not help too well, but it is a little better if I, than I had in previous years. I still under psychiatric care at the VA hospital. Once a month, go to the psychiatrist and we talk about the events that happened in the past 30 days. You know, this is the stuff that you just don't hear about. Uh, you, you know, we hear about all the heroic, uh, heroic things that, that happened during the war and everything. But when the veterans come home, when the POWs come home, uh, you know, dealing with the, the PTSD, which, you know, I think at the time was poorly understood. Um, it's obviously, uh, and he even mentions how the VA in recent years during this interview uh, provided the ability for these guys to get more counseling. But back during the war, um, you know, a lot of what they would do would pr provide, you know, essentially barbiturates um, and prescription drugs uh, to kind of for sedatives to help guys calm their nerves. You know, I just never knew about all this stuff. You know, and when you watch The Great Escape and you watch Stalag 17 and you watch Hogan's Heroes, this side of being a POW where uh, you're tortured and you're uh, put in these uh, inhumane uh, confines and starved to death with disease all around you uh, are not talked about and are really not in the public consciousness that much. Hard, hard to add to that, Brian. I, yeah. 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 I mean, what you say is is, is spot on. And, and again, it's a... To to, uh, to parallel what David just said, I mean, you know, there's nothing more needs to be added to it. You're, yeah, you're, yeah. 
we'll move on into uh, how his PTSD actually started to affect his marriage. Although I worked after the war, I did not let this get me down. I didn't drink. I raised a family with, but it was very difficult. My wife and I became farther and farther apart. And although she died her seven, about 17 years ago, shortly before death, we were about as far apart as you could get without having a divorce. Uh, my children never understood my life. And it was very difficult and still difficult to try to explain to them what happened. Sometimes when I try to, I think they get the impression that I'm making excuses. But all I can do is tell them how I feel. You know, um, I did a little research on uh, post-traumatic stress in, in World War II veterans specifically. Uh, there's a number of articles written out there, uh, mostly medical journals, that sort of thing, uh, Journal of Nursing, things like that, where they advise nurses and, uh, and and the doctors talk about, you know, how to recognize what some of these ailments the, the veterans may be experiencing late in life that could be directly attributed to their experiences as a POW. Um, he, he mentions divorce and, you know, not that they, he went through the divorce, but, but they were, he's mentioned how he and his wife were about as far apart as you could get the divorce rates following world war two for, uh, for individuals with PTSD, especially shell shock veterans, prisoners of war, uh, is, it was found that about 30% of PT, uh, POWs with PTSD experienced relationship problems and only 11% of veterans without PTSD experienced marital problems. A different study found that being an active combatter on the front lines also increased the likelihood of marital discord. And from this, it could be suggested that those who have been in high-stress situations and subsequently developed PTSD have a higher prevalence of marital problems than those without. Those with PTSD have more marital issues due to slow adjustment back home, a lack of valuable communication or expression, intimacy problems, life disruption, economic problems, aggression, and lingering mental health impacts. So um, some of these men uh, experience physical ailments too. I know that my wife's grandfather, who was a POW, had stomach issues that he dealt with his, the rest of his life after uh enduring near starvation you know during his time in captivity um shoulder issues from uh you know of course uh being wounded uh from shrapnel during the battle but not getting proper medical care the entire time so anyway uh these guys suffered we're learning more and more about them all the time here so uh we'll move on now and to some of the additional comments uh that frank had here Priscilla, did you want to jump in with something? Sorry about that. Yeah, Priscilla, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, um, it. you know, I think it's perspective, right? It's It was hard for him, you know, because he was saying that he was trying to explain to his children what life was like. And, of course, they're not going to really get it because they have their own perspective, right? Like you, you have a father with PTSD. So they don't know what he really went through. And even when you hear the stories— you can't really understand what it's like to be in a box car. You can't really, you know, it's just so, it's just so beyond normality. Um, but, you know, I think, I think from their perspective, 
you know, they they didn't understand why he was upset or why he was mean. Or, you know, he had left the family for a while. My dad was 10. My dad is the youngest. And he left for about two years. Um, didn't send money home. You know, things were really, really hard on them until my dad actually got really sick. And then my grandfather came back. Um, but... I, you know, my grandfather, he had just, he had such a hard time with trying to deal with all of those problems. And, you know, he didn't have the VA at that point to go to. There was no one in 1955, you know, to talk about your feelings and talk about, you know, like your injuries that you had from the war and those, those memories. And how do you, how do you raise a family and be married and deal with all that stuff? You know, you went from, you know, leaving, um, where he was, you know, Newport. And then he, you know, you walk into a house and then there's a child on the floor who's crying and there's a family and suddenly you're just all in again, you know, and it's, it's two separate lives. And it was really challenging. And he, he talked about that to me about walking into the door and seeing my grandmother and seeing his, his son and just feeling like he couldn't, he couldn't deal with any of that, you know, it just, he didn't know how to be a husband and a dad because he was still trying to recover. You know, he didn't have that time to recover. Um, he had talked about when he was captured and they were still marching and, you know, we're, you know, the friendly fire that he was being, you know, they were being injured and he, he was, um, some bomb went off and he was blasted against a wall and he hurt his back, but he never had, you know, any medical care for, you know, for all those months until he came home. But even when he came home, he didn't really get much medical care. And they said, well, if you were going to file this claim, and I think he's going to talk about that, you're going to file a claim, then um, you can't go home yet. You know, and they just, at some point, you just wanted to end it and, and be done. And and the army made it sound like, oh, well, this is going to slow you down if you if you try to file these things. <laughs> and... Um, you know, so I think they were just trying to encourage everyone to just let's be done and let's move on. Sure, David, go ahead. Uh, that that um, that was a common problem at um, as these guys were mustered out. Um, you can imagine millions of people being processed in uh, two or three months' time, trying to get back into civilian life, and. All these guys wanted to do was go home. And even though they, a lot of them were really, really damaged, that was their focus. They wanted to go home. And a lot of their injuries, um, whether physical or mental, were never recorded because that was the threat. If you, if you wanted to file a claim or you, you um, had particular problem, um, people in the, the artillery had severe ear damage or anybody who was in combat for any length of time had severe ear damage. Um, it, if you've ever been in a firefight, it is a loud, loud thing and, and your ears get numb after a while. So, so they wouldn't, w- wouldn't report that because that was going to slow them up. Well, consequently, uh, 20 years later or so, now they've got these serious disabilities that are actually um, uh, military-related, war-related, and they're trying to file claims, and they don't have any proof of it. They want 
the, the VA wanted um, uh, signatures by at least one officer. Uh, all the all of the require the normal peacetime requirements just didn't apply. Um, my dad was involved through um, the veterans of the Battle of the Bulge organization. Uh, he was involved in trying to get um, medical benefits for some of these guys. He he spent six months on one guy's case just trying to get him some some hearing aids. That the, the VA wouldn't wouldn't budge because they didn't have they didn't have the appropriate paperwork and they didn't have the officer's signatures. But you know this was a guy who said, you know, "My ears are fine. I'm going home." And then twenty years later, he's deaf as a post. And he's trying to get some help with the hearing aids. My dad had to go to uh, the local congressman to intercede, and the guy finally got his his hearing aids. Um, but that mm-hmm. was um, that was probably more common than people realize. Wow, what a what a struggle for these guys. You're right. I mean, what a, I mean to to you're when the war ends, you just want to get the heck home, That's man. Right. That's you know. Right. And and you're gonna you're you're like I don't want to be over here any longer, and I have to. I've got a family back home. I want to see my girlfriend or my wife. Some of these guys were twenty years old when they were getting discharged. Sure, but twenty years. Can you imagine your mindset at twenty, just trying to get back no. to the world? <laughs> and you you're not gonna you're not gonna confuse things by by mentioning a, a an earache or a backache, or uh, or a wound that hasn't quite healed all the way. You're You'll take care of that later. Well, fortunately, later came sooner than expected. And Well, you know, and that's the thing about you're right, because, you know, you're 20 years old. You're going to live forever, right? Absolutely. You, know? fact, you, you and, live through a war. And, you can live. You can do anything now. Th- that's that's true. And it was not I mean, that was that generation didn't talk about what was bothering them. You know, it was the it was more of their I think their the the code or the code of conduct, whatever you want to call it, where that generation just did talk about themselves, you know, and and that would probably played into that to a degree to not call attention to what's ailing you, you know. So well, my my dad, anyway, in, in that, fact, in, um, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but but um, he was legally blind in one eye when when he went in the army. Um, but his whole attitude in life was he just didn't want to be different from anybody. He just wanted to be like anybody else. And he finagled his way into the army. But he, he served in that, that country. He was, he was legally blind in that left eye. And he, he was really a, a one-eyed soldier for, for, and a one-eyed man for, for the wow. rest of his life. And he compensated that by just overcoming. And he just didn't, just didn't want to feel different. And that, that was, you know, the, the, the culture at the time that, that was, um, they weren't, they weren't, they weren't kind, not in a mean way, but they weren't conscious of necessarily kind to people with disabilities. How did he hide that during his physical, you know, cause I would imagine that could have, could that have uh, made him 4F? He, he didn't, for yeah, it, it was, um, it was, uh, it was detected during that that uh, physical, but the doctor told him that um, that he he couldn't qualify for for combat. And he said, and Dad was very very adamant. I, I really want to serve. I want to I want to be in. So he says, well, I'll I'll put a note on here um, that is 
that it is um, uh, a situation where you you can have limited duty. Uh, you can d- perform some jobs, but you'll um, you'll probably never leave the states. You'll you'll um, mm. you'll be uh, assigned to something stateside and, and make a contribution. And he got assigned to the 28th Infantry Division. And that was the last he heard of that. <laughs> and when the 28th Division went to <laughs> Europe, he was right with them. How did he do with his, like, uh, I mean, he obviously knew how to, he was a rifleman also because he saw some action over there. How did he do with being legally blind in well, one he was eye primar- with, with he, respect to he shooting? He was primarily a um, <clears throat> communications man. He was in a cryptographer. So his he spent most of his time um, working in a, whether it was in the field or what, working on, on messaging equipment. And uh, the only combat he active combat he saw was when he was uh, pinned down in um, Clairvaux and, and had to get out of there. Um, and he he actually had to to, to shoot two uh, German machine gunners as they were setting up um, that were going to block his path, and he he had to uh, he had to get past that. And um, he could still shoot; he's got one good eye. And, and, and uh, <laughs> he didn't have any he didn't have any problem with that, but that wasn't his primary job. He if he had been in a in a line outfit, he 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 would have been a liability because you, you would have no provis- peripheral vision, right. and uh, you'd be a liability to the people around you. But he wasn't that, that wasn't his job. He wasn't supposed to do that. His 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 job actually at the time was to show movies. Well, okay. Well, let, let we'll keep moving here. Um, uh, now, uh, Frank talks about some of the treatment he got um, after he got back in the USA as far as, uh, you know, some negative treatment. Another incident I thought that we were treated very badly as ex-prisoners wars after our arrival in Fort Dix. Uh, some of the officers in charge of the prisoner war complement that was there while we were being brought up our back pay and travel pay home for a recuperation furlough. We're very impatient with us. One instant was was a very rainy day. Hard rain was falling, and the PS system announced that barrack so-and-so, which I was to, was to go to building so-and-so to pick up ration stamps, such as sugar, uh, coffee, gasoline, shoe stamps. Well, it was raining very hard and none of us moved. So again, the officer announced over the PA system that we immediately proceed to building so-and-so and pick up these items. Again, none of us moved. The lieutenant, which I probably never did know his name, who was a second lieutenant command and try to have a stand at attention and be rated as because be with the words, because you're ex-prisoners of war, you know, you're no heroes. You're going to do what you're told around here. So it really lowered the morale after all these months overseas in combat, prisoner of war. And nothing's going right. We're being chewed out. You know, the thing that, that I'm sitting here thinking while I'm, I'm hearing uh, him talk about this is, Obviously, they they haven't been discharged yet. They're back in the U.S. after they've 
you know, probably been at Camp Lucky Strike after they were uh, liberated from their their POW camp. They have to basically get fattened back up to a degree before they would send you back home. Pat- uh, Priscilla, do you know uh, how much weight did your grandfather lose? Did he ever say? He never told me exactly, but um, but he was way off his normal two hundred. I mean he he was he was down a lot because I remember him saying like pants, like, you know, to try to even have his uniform fit. You know, it was just he was just so he just felt like he was just kind of skin and bones. I've heard some guys say that um, they lost like sixty pounds when they were POW. You know, yeah, he and, never did tell me, but yeah, I'm. I can only imagine. I mean, he was a POW for five months, so very little food, you know. Right. And, and that's the thing about it. Only five months and these guys lose, you know, a third of their body weight. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, I mean, it's it's got to be traumatic on your body. But whenever these guys are back in the U.S. and they're in this barracks, obviously they were – could they – I mean – he said that the announcement came over for them to go to this other place and get these supplies. No one moved. They were all obviously going through some morale issues, depression, for instance, and that sort of thing. Um, could I, I wondered what they physically looked like? You know, were were they still really thin guys that that were still suffering from diseases? Because you know, these guys had, uh, you know. Uh, dysentery and other types of problems that they were dealing with when they were in the camps. Um, I would imagine that they were on antibiotics and things like that, but I, I can't help but feel like that they should have been given a little bit more of a, a pass on how they behaved, you know, with re- respect to dis- military discipline. Yeah. I think the the people he was around, you know, they, I don't think there was any kind of training on how do you, how do you uh, treat prisoners of war once they come home from from being a prisoner of war? You know, like, there was there was no rule book, I guess, on that kind of stuff, and they were just being treated like any other GI, and that doesn't work. You know, yeah. didn't work. Yeah. Well, if they're if they're um, having a deal with a brand new second lieutenant who's probably nef- never left the states, um, immediately. They have no respect for him, and they only respect people they served with who went through the same types of things. I I can remember uh, I can remember coming home um, from Vietnam, and you know everybody had um, you had to serve um, you know thirteen month tour. And when I came home, I only had eight months to go, so I didn't. Um, there was no way I was going to be sent back there. And it's pretty easy to to develop kind of a an attitude at the time. We used to call it short timers. And um, if you get into a little difficulty, you know the attitude really, and it was kind of common at the time, is what what can they do to me? Send me to Nam. <laughs> you know, you you feel pretty much immune, and I I can imagine these guys coming coming back and waiting for their discharge, and they've been through what they've been through, and now they got some young lieutenant trying to throw his weight around. 
they, he got he's lucky he wasn't stuffed in a garbage can. <laughs> <laughs> right. All right. Well, we'll move on here. Uh, now he's going to talk about another XPOW incident here. And another incident comes to my mind as being an ex-prisoner of war where we were badly mistreated and badly misled was on discharge at Indian Town Gap. We were rushed through our discharge program with very little medical attention or examination. And we were called into a one of the post buildings and two or three medical officers stood before us and told us if you were going to put any claims or claim in injuries as a prisoner of war or sickness, this could hold your discharge up anywhere from six weeks to possibly three months. At that time, everybody was happy to go home, I know, including myself. And what injuries I received and sicknesses that I had as a prisoner of war, I had just forgotten my one to get home. So the result was none of this was ever entered on our military record. And later in life, when we applied and I applied, along with others for medical attention or compensation through the VA. We had no medical records of this. The VA also was very, how would I word it, very impatient with us. Uh, if you claimed an injury, in, in my case of back and neck injuries and bites from dogs and butts from German rifle butts, they wanted to know the name of an officer who witnessed it at that time, which was almost impossible. And being a prisoner of war, you didn't go around introducing yourself to the next prisoner of war. Your only thought was survival and something to eat. Uh, at discharge, the company clerks who was bringing our discharge papers uh, or typing them when I told them that I had been injured uh, by our own allied bombing and injuries suffered by dogs, German dogs and German guards, said, you don't want this on your discharge papers. You don't even want being taken prisoner. Well, this all worked against us later, especially in my case, trying to establish a claim with the Veterans Administration. There were no medical records. World War II, I would say in the early 50s, 1950, in that neighborhood, the VA was very impatient with prisoners of war. Trying to establish claim or medical treatment, I was told by one of the VA doctors, UX prisoners are a pain in the rear end. So being a prisoner at that time from World War II sometimes made you feel like it would have been better to have been shot and come home. You would have got more recognition, but to be a prisoner was more or less a disgrace. And uh, it has been in my mind, it's probably one of the reasons I've had problems with nerves and bad dreams and bad thoughts. I don't blame him. Um, you know, to, to endure what you've endured, to have been a good soldier up to the point that you were captured, and even then you were a good soldier, to, to look a German in the eye and, and not reveal information to them when they're threatening to shoot you, that's heroism. 
that is a, a spine of steel. And uh, he kept his chin up the entire time, as did an, all, all these guys, you know, to survive this and come home to be looked at with disdain would be a, the ultimate. I mean, it would be it would be depressing. It'd be feel it'd feel like a betrayal. It would feel it would it would follow you the rest of your life. You know, there was a, a, a 101st Airborne paratrooper that we did a series on named Leo Westerholm. He he became he was captured as soon as he hit the ground. Okay, and he was a POW the rest of the war, and he talked about after they got back, um, you know, in the U.S. They were at a diner, um, and these POWs were, and they announced over the intercom that there were, uh, you know, POWs there, and you know, basically were bad mouthing them, basically calling them cowards for for being POWs. I mean, now a lot of this is just pure ignorance on the on the the uh, the behalf of the person talking. You know, not everyone felt like that, but there just wasn't the apparatus in place or the culture, the cultural phenomenon in place to, uh, to understand what these guys went through and, and to get them the treatment that they deserve. Yeah. There was, I think a lot of moments that could have been handled differently for these men. It's just heartbreaking when, you know, my grandpa would tell me these stories of, of, um, people that, you know, they, to, to the one, that one man saying, you don't, you don't want this on your record. So it's almost like you're telling them that it's embarrassing. Like, how dare you be captured? You know, and it makes you rethink your, you know, like, well, maybe I could have done something different. You know, that was why they had the problems that they had. If there were someone that could have been um, a better ear to listen to, maybe maybe a lot of these men could have had um, different experiences after the war. Mm-hmm. So very heartbreaking. Yeah, I would agree. Um, well, we're down to our last clip from Frank here, um, and uh, we'll go ahead and wrap this up. Then we can kind of uh, uh, kind of do a little bit of a closing here. But here's Frank talking about uh, his service and looking back on it in World War II. My impression of service in World War II, of all what happened to me, I have no regrets. I would be very glad to be assigned again to any branch of the service defense of the United States. I'll remain that way, I guess, the end of my life. I hope this will help somebody in future events. Frank McClellan, West Midland, Pennsylvania. What a great way to end Frank's series here. Uh, and what a great guy. I wish I had had a chance to, to meet him and everything. Um, Priscilla, when you hear that, what do you think about your grandpa? Oh, you know, I, um, I, I think about how much I miss him, you know, I mean, he's been gone since 2007. Um, I think about the, the war reunions I went on with him, you know, as he got older and he didn't feel comfortable driving out to Indian town gap from Pittsburgh, which is a pretty good drive. Um, so I would go with them and I would sit in a room with all these men who were just reliving their stories. And, you know, it was just, it was fun. I had such a good time with them. Um, but he really, um, you know, through it all, you know, just like he said, 
you know, he wouldn't have done something different. You know, he was doing what he thought was the right thing. Um, I think, you know, later in life, he really found the closure, you know, in, in some aspects. He found friendships that were very meaningful to him um, from David's dad uh, to some of the people over in Wilts and other areas of Luxembourg that cared about these people. They, you know, when he went over there, I don't think we mentioned this, you know, when he got there and um, he always wore a woolen cap. So when he checked into the hotel, the woman thought he was English. So she asked him if he was from England. And he says, no, I'm, I'm American and I fought here during World War II. And he's, she said, oh, well, you must have been with the 28th Division. And he couldn't believe that anyone would even know that because back home in the 1970s, he says, I didn't think anyone would be able to tell me where the 20th division was. <laughs> and here this lady was who knew it. And, and she said, oh, there's, there's monuments to you everywhere in this country. And there's people who are going to want to know you. They're going to want to meet you. And it just started this, you know, this second part, like this other chapter of his life where he was able to heal some of those emotional wounds and build these amazing friendships that um, carried him through the rest of his life. So, yeah. That's fantastic. <laughs> David, as a, as a Marine Corps veteran and uh, a, a veteran of Vietnam, when you came back, uh, what sort of feelings did you have um, with, uh, did you have to experience any sort of PTSD issues like he did? Uh, no, I, I really, I really didn't. I, my, uh, I wasn't a, uh, I wasn't a, uh, a full-time trooper. Um, I spent most of my career, <clears throat> um, keeping, keeping records straight. Um, so PTSD was not something that I encountered, but I did encounter, um, some pretty rude treatment, especially when I was trying to finish my college degree from some of the students there. But um, that's an, that's maybe another story for another time, Ryan. I, I'd like to comment a sure. little bit more on Frank. Um, um, when I first met him, it was in 77, and he was very, very kind and very generous to, to me and, and my family. Um, was very pleased that we were there. And um, he had made, like Priscilla said, some very good friends there. In fact, I, I wouldn't be surprised that a lot of his recovery um, was due to how he was welcomed and treated in Wilts and in Luxembourg in general. Um, the people there um, worship, worshipped these guys from the 28th division, they owe their lives to the 28th division and, and they could never do enough for you. Those guys couldn't pay for a drink in that town. It was, it, it was just <laughs> the, 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 the red carpet is well it's still out today. Even for my family, when, when we go back um, for St. Nicholas day, we're, we're treated like royalty and uh, everywhere we go and people can't wait to talk to us and tell us their stories. And um, so that, that was a very, I think a very um, meaningful thing for Frank. If he had not made those extra trips to Luxembourg, I, I'm not sure he would have survived all his, his difficulties, but that, that helped him a lot. 
And uh, just on, on closing of that, the last thing I'd like to comment is I, I had the honor and privilege um, to attend uh, Frank's funeral. And he is, in fact, buried at the National Cemetery in Indian Town Gap, where, where a lot of his troubles began. But, but he is, in <laughs> fact, there, and, and um, he's, he's, among, he's among his troopers. He's among mm. his friends. And it was a very moving uh, military funeral, and, um, and Priscilla was there with her family. But it was it was just wonderful to be there. And and we've um, my wife and I have stopped a couple of times on our way uh, as we make our way south, and just take a little detour to Indian Town Gap and say hello to Frank. Oh, that's yeah. fantastic. Thanks, David. Peter, I'm going to flip it to you in closing here. Do you have any closing thoughts on the Frank McClellan story here? Well, I, I, you know, just to just to echo what you know we've said before is that you know the, I think you have to look at Frank as being a genuine hero, and and David's absolutely right. I think part of his his recovery was you know due to the people in in Vils in Luxembourg. When he when he's gone back numerous times and, and and you know there, Frank and the others they are regarded as absolute heroes and you know and it's sad that you know you come here they come back to the states and they they face the treatment that they did and I, I you know it's unfair but it is what it is um, but yeah to, to David's point they they the people in in again it, we'll speak it just in Luxembourg terms um, never forgot what was sacrificed for their freedom and i and i think you know when they whenever a veteran would go back there they would they will and, and still do treat them as the heroes that they are well said that's great well um i want to thank you guys uh for for being willing to come on here and 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 go through uh frank's clips here with me it really adds a lot of um context to everything he says to have you guys here to help comment um so peter lyon thank you so much david brookens priscilla forney you guys are great people i'm so happy that i've gotten to know you guys over the last couple of years here so but anyway well um in closing uh i just want to say uh thank you guys for for being on here this was a real privilege to be involved in helping to tell frank's story and as he said in his own words i hope these words help somebody out there um at least it, it helps us it helps people out there understand what uh our nation's veterans went through and what they deal with when they get back whether they're pow's or not mm-hmm. so um my name is ryan fairfield and thanks for listening we'll talk to you soon thanks ryan This wraps up the Frank McClellan series on the Warrior Next Door podcast. We here at the Warrior Next Door want to thank Mr. McClellan for his service to our country during World War II. And we also want to sincerely thank author of the books, The American Saint Nick and Merg, Peter Lyon, son of the original American Saint Nick, Mr. David Brookins, and granddaughter of Frank McClellan, Priscilla Forney for serving as our guest co-hosts on this series, providing personal stories about Frank and honoring his memory.